Aren't you glad you came to church today? I know I am. I'm thankful for the opportunity to worship with you and to uh, continue our series. Uh, we're, we're coming down the home stretch this week and next, and, and we'll be into Advent before we know it. So I uh, hope that doesn't freak you out too much. Um, but it's right around the corner. So um, I, I always enjoy when I, I know what I'm going to be preaching on and I have an opportunity to collect little things that fit perfectly into that. And a couple of months ago, I saw this cartoon strip. Um, it's not really a cartoon. It's, it's, it's called Coffee with Jesus, and it takes the, the format of four frames um, that always seem to make a point. Uh, and sometimes I agree wholeheartedly and say a hearty amen to the point that's being made, and sometimes it stings a little bit. Um, but I wanted to share this one with you because it plays perfectly into this series and into today's message in particular. If you can't read the words, um, the first frame is a guy named Carl. And uh, this is how this always takes the same format. Somebody having a conversation with Jesus, a cup of coffee with Jesus. He says, do I have any idols that need smashing, Jesus? And Jesus says, I admire your honest introspection, Carl. And yes, you have some things in your life that could take a back seat to me for sure. I'll bet football's one, or just sports in general, or TV, or just entertainment as a whole, or oh, food. God, I love food. And so what about you? What, what would be some things that you might put in that third frame, some, some idols that need smashing, that need to take a back seat to Jesus? Think about those for a minute, and, and what, they might come, uh, what, what might come up if you were having a similar conversation with Jesus, but I love Jesus' response in the fourth frame. He says, all of these are great targets, Carl, but let's smash the biggest idol first. I call it Carl. <laughs> We're in a series on dying to ourselves and living uh, to and through and by the Holy Spirit, and that's been a consistent theme of ours, that, that self so often gets in the way, and that our ego and our sin nature and our flesh uh, causes us to make ourselves the main point, the main event, and to be more focused on building the little kingdom of myself over and above God's kingdom. And so in the first three weeks, we centered on uh, this idea of self-centeredness, self-righteousness, self-sufficiency. These are all what happens when the ego is in control. Last week, we sort of turned a corner and started to talk about what are the functions that the Holy Spirit would play in our lives? What are the functions that the Holy Spirit brings about? So last week, we talked about self-awareness, that the Holy Spirit will give us a self-awareness. Sometimes this comes in the form of conviction, where we realize something that we're doing uh, does not fit with God's purposes for our lives. But the Spirit also gives us a God-awareness, and that it's the combination of that God-awareness and that Spirit awareness, or I'm sorry, that self-awareness that enables us to live out the, the life that God has for us and desires for us. And so we looked at, uh, at Jesus's words in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This awareness that we have as our hearts become cleansed by the blood of Christ, and as we become a new creation in him, we suddenly have eyes to see everything that he's doing in the world, eyes to see his activity and the part that we have 
to play in that. So if you've missed any of those weeks and want to go back and catch up on that, you can go to our website, you can go to our Facebook page, and there are video uh, of the message there. You can go to our website or podcast and listen to the audio. But today we're going to be continuing that theme of what does the Spirit prompt in us rather than what does the ego or the sin nature prompt in us. And we're going to be talking about selfless living. Now, the sermon title or the series title is Selfless. So this is kind of getting into the heart of what we're talking about today in intentionally living a more selfless life of love with God and with the people around us. And so we're going to start in Luke chapter 9. We've been in Matthew a lot. I really like the way Luke um, says this passage, records this passage, and it stood out to me as uh, the sort of anthem verse for our Linwood student ministries. You see it on all their uh, print and all their graphics and all of that. Uh, it's really at the core of what Linwood student ministries is, is trying to develop in the heart of our students in the next generation. And so I want to read this passage to you. You can look it up on page 1609 in the Blue Bibles, or you can follow along in your own translation. And then we'll pick this one apart, uh, verse by verse, even phrase by phrase on a couple of the verses, and really see all the richness that, uh, that it has for us. So the context here is Jesus has just fed the 5,000. Um, and so the disciples have just seen this tremendous miracle take place. And then he has this conversation with the disciples about who do the crowds say that I am. And Peter confesses him as the Christ, the son of the living God. Rather than a prophet, rather than, you know, a wise person, you are the Messiah, you are the promised one, you are the Christ. Then Jesus says these words, and immediately following this, he takes Peter, James, and John up to the Mount of Transfiguration, where they see a manifestation of his glory in all of its fullness. So between the miracle and the manifestation, we have this proclamation of Jesus to his closest followers. And here's what he says. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? And so if we look at verse 23 in particular, that first phrase, if anyone would, if anyone would. Now, in our common vernacular, the way that we speak today, would, is usually kind of followed by, I would do this, but, or I would if I could, or something like that. But here, the would that we're translating, uh, it really speaks to intention and desire. It's the Greek word thelo, and it means to desire, to wish, to will something to happen, wanting what is best or optimal because someone is ready and willing to act. So this is way beyond wishful thinking. This is there's a desire and there is a willingness or an intention to act. Now, last week I said adults tend to do what adults intend to do. And this is hearkening back to that. Jesus is saying, if anyone desires, if anyone intends to follow me or to come after me, that's the next phrase, to come after means to become a disciple. He's not saying just, you know, follow me for a day or two. He's saying this is somebody who's going to become a disciple, who's going to become a follower, who's literally going to become an apprentice. When this word was translated uh, into the, the French language, they chose the word apprentice. Um, and 
if you're in uh, one of the trades, a lot of times you go and get some training, and then you're an apprentice to a master or a journeyman plumber, journeyman electrician, and you learn how to do the trade. And this is a good word picture for what happens when we choose to come after, when we intend and make an, an intentional choice for our will to come after or to follow Christ, we become a follower, an apprentice. It's way, way beyond a moment of agreement or identifying with Christ. He's saying, you're going to follow me, not just today, but for the rest of your life. When we baptize people here, we ask them if they have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And then you've probably noticed, I always ask another question. I said, do you intend to follow him for the rest of your life. That intention, that desire to be a follower, to be a disciple, to be a, a learner, an apprentice of Christ is critical and goes way beyond a momentary um, agreement. And it hearkens to the follow me at the end of this verse as well. So to come after is to follow. It means to follow the example, to follow the teachings, to go through life as a follower of Christ. And so if anyone would, would desire, would intend to come after, to be a follower, to be a disciple, then he says what needs to take place. He must deny himself. To deny oneself is, is to renounce personal control of one's life. And the word self is popping up all over the place in this passage and in the words behind this passage because this is really where the rubber meets the road on discipleship, on being a follower and apprentice of Christ is that we have to get over our self, over ourselves and deny ourselves, give up and renounce personal control of our lives. Last week we talked about consciously choosing to commit all my life and will to Christ's care and control. That's essentially what it means to deny oneself. It's that I entrust myself, I entrust my whole life to Christ's care and control. And not just deny yourself, but also take up your cross daily. We deny ourselves, we take up our cross daily. We make a daily commitment, even if it leads to rejection, even if it leads to death. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the persecuted church, and we prayed for the persecuted church. It was the international day of prayer for the persecuted church. And we don't understand persecution here in America the same way that many of our brothers and sisters understand persecution. When they choose to follow Christ, when they choose to deny themselves and take up their cross daily, they literally take up their cross daily. They identify and make a commitment with Christ that could lead to their persecution. It could lead to their death. And there, the church is exploding in these areas because people are responding to the commitment and they're living their lives. They're completely turning their lives over to Christ. They're not holding anything back. Because you don't make a half-hearted commitment that's going to potentially cost you your life. And then I saw a friend post. He's like, we, we, we should pray for the church that is persecuted, but we should not get this idea that there is a persecuted church and an unpersecuted church. There is one church around the world. We are all brothers and sisters in Christ. And if any part of the church is persecuted, all of the church is persecuted. We are fortunate to live in an area where we do not face the same types of persecutions, but we have brothers and sisters around the world who are facing that persecution and who, when they make a commitment to Christ, it could literally cost them their lives. And we should keep this in mind. 
And so all of this in verse 23 is leading to this understanding. And I love the way that, uh, that this author, Alicia Chole, phrases this. She says, when we say yes to Jesus's follow me, we're saying yes to something that is more relational than directional. We're saying yes to a relationship with Jesus Christ that will systematically transform every part of us. It's not just to follow him directionally, but to follow him relationally, to be in a relationship with him and to let that relationship guide everything that we do, every decision that we make, that we would not just be close to Christ or kind of ebb and flow and sometimes we're close and sometimes we're not, that we would be centered on Christ and following him through life. If we move on to verse 24, it says, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. And if, if you've not heard that before, that sounds a little confusing. Like, what, what's he saying? What, what does he mean when he says that? And I like the way the ESV, the English study, uh, or the English Standard Version study notes phrased it. They said, Jesus' teaching here involves a paradox. The person who lives a self-centered life will not find eternal life with God. But the person who gives up his self-centered life for the sake of Christ and the gospel will find everlasting life with God. So there is a life that we release in order to receive the life that Christ has for us. There is a life and a control and a power over ourselves that we relinquish in order to receive the eternal life of Christ. And I think it was Hudson Taylor, this quote just popped into my mind, um, and I didn't have time to look it up, but he said, he is no fool who trades what he cannot keep to obtain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who, who gives away what he cannot keep to obtain what he cannot lose. When we give away our self in order to obtain eternal life in Christ that we cannot lose, that is a good, good trade. And so if we look at this verse a little more closely, we see that word wants, whoever wants, whoever wants to come after me, whoever wants to save his life. It's that same word want is that same word uh, that we translated earlier above. It involves desire, it involves intention. It's the same word as the wood that we saw earlier, that thalo. And if we want to we will. If we intend to, we will see it happen. If we have the desire and the intention, but if we just kind of wishful, I want the eternal life, but I don't really want to get rid of my control. I don't want to give up the reins completely. I just want the benefits without the exchange. Then that's where we lose. We lose our life. If we want to keep our life, if we want to hold on to it, hold on to control, then we lose our life. And that word lose or loses, as it's translated here, it's not an accidental misplacement, okay? When you look at the words behind the words, when you look at the Greek language that their scriptures come to us in, it's talking about killing or destroying. Whoever, whoever does this loses their life because they have chosen to, to set it aside, to to set aside eternity, to set aside the eternal life that God has for them, they don't just misplace their life. They don't misplace their eternity. There is a, an act of will that is involved here. And then verse 25, I love this, uh, this verse. And as I was thinking about this verse um, where he says, 
What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his very self? Uh, there's a song by Toby Mack that says, I don't want to gain the whole world and lose my soul. Maybe you've heard that song, how this verse is translated sometimes. And it reminded me of when Keaton was small enough to be in a stroller, but big enough to sing. And we had been playing that song, and he was in the stroller, kind of in his own little world, playing with something. And he started thinking about that song, and he started singing that song at the top of his lungs, in Target, and this little kid in a stroller. I don't want to gain the whole world. That's the only time you'll ever hear me sing at Linwood Wesleyan Church, I promise. But he belted it out, and to my dismay, I just reacted in the moment. I said, oh, Keaton, shh. And I'll never forget some ladies like, don't ever shush a kid when he is praising God and singing, you know, the truth of Scripture. And it was just this fun little memory. But, but we don't. We don't want to, if we think about it, we don't want to gain the whole world through selfish ambition, through, through hook or by crook. We don't want to gain the whole world and lose our soul for eternity. Remember, because the whole world that we gain in this little vapor that is our life compared to the eternity that we will have lost our soul, it's not a good trade. It's not a good exchange. We don't want to lose or forfeit. We don't want to destroy or suffer loss or damage to our self, our eternal self, to our soul. And that Greek root of the word that is translated as self there and is often translated as soul is the word auto, like autonomy, where we have self-direction, autonomy or automatic. You know, we call them automobiles because they go by themselves. They don't need something to push them or pull them. The thing itself, the car, is able to move, so it is auto mobile. It's, I'm an automobile. I can move myself around too. But, but the automobile is able to move itself. And so that's what that word auto indicates is, is there is a self, there is a will, there is an intention that is there. And so what Jesus has just given us here is what we often call the call to discipleship, the call for the internal person, the individual person, to choose selfless living and to choose to follow Christ. And he's speaking to his disciples and he's using the first person. But it makes you wonder, what about the church? What about corporately? Is there a call to selfless living that we would experience corporately together for those who have chosen to follow Christ, who have chosen to answer his call to discipleship. And Paul has written some words to a church a lot like Linwood just 2,000 years ago and around the world, but similar in many ways to Linwood in Philippians chapter 2. And so if you have one of those Bibles on your lap, open it up to page 1827. Because here Paul is calling the church corporately to pursue this type of of selfless living. So once again, I'll read the passage and then we'll walk through verse by verse. He says, If you have any encouragement from being united in Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
So in verse 1, he's talking about if you have any encouragement from being united in Christ, if you collectively, it's a plural you, if you as the church have any encouragement from being united in Christ. So those of you who are in Christ, we're all united in Christ together. That word encouragement is important to understand because encouragement today seems to have more to do with a, a you know, get well soon card or, you know, a nice you know, a nice feeling that we want to share with someone, uh, you know, cheer up kind of a message of encouragement. But the word literally means to come alongside with strength, to come alongside with strength. The word courage is right in the middle of the word, to bring courage into someone, not just to cheer us up. He's not saying if you have any cheering up that you experience together by being united in Christ. He's saying if there is any mutual strength, if there is any encouraging that takes place as a result of being united in Christ, if there is any strength that comes into your life through that collectively. And it's, it's amazing. The word there is the same word that we translate in other places as the Holy Spirit, the paraclete. Remember in the Supernatural series, we were talking about the paraclete, that Greek word that means the comforter, the one who comes alongside with strength. And he's basically saying, if there's something in you collectively that brings courage and brings strength into your lives. And it reminded me of a story I heard um, of, of Navy SEALs, uh, and I don't know if you've ever heard or, or understood what they go through in their training. It's, it's several months long, and it ends with a week where they are literally on the move the entire week. No sleep, no food, no water. It is the worst week of their training. It is the final week of their training, and if they do not make it through that week, they will not be a Navy SEAL. They might be able to find another place, but they will not be a Navy SEAL. And the story was told of the final day of that. And they were supposed to swim across this channel of open water. And one of the first ones to, to end got up and got on this little bluff. And he looked out over the water to find his, his friend. Because every one of them has a buddy. And you go through this experience together. And he saw his friend and he saw him start to go under the water. And all he had to do was raise his fist. And he saw that. The one going down, he saw that. And he surged forward. And he made it onto the beach. He went from literally drowning and giving up on the dream, on the goal of being a Navy SEAL, with the simple act of his friend, his buddy, the one that was alongside him, raising his fist into the air and spurring him on. That's the type of encouragement. That's the type of strength and courage that we are to receive from each other and from the Holy Spirit. We see that in the next phrase. If any fellowship in the Spirit, any partnership that we would have together with each other, but also together with the Holy Spirit, that we link arms not just one with another, but we link arms with God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. That we have fellowship together, but we have fellowship in the Spirit, with the Spirit. We have fellowship with each other and with the Holy Spirit. Then we make His joy complete, and He tells us how to make His joy complete. By being like-minded. Now, don't miss this, because to be like-minded means to be single-minded or of one mind, but the Greek root is once again this word Auto. So Jesus is talking about it individually, our individual self, and Paul is talking about our corporate self 
that we lay that on the altar as well, and we don't bring a bunch of individual selves in together, but we have a singular, collective self. And as I saw that link with that Greek word, auto, that we have that one with each other and with the Holy Spirit, it kind of blew my mind a little bit. It was like Jesus and Paul are talking about the same thing. They're talking about this combined collective identity that we have with Christ, with each other, and with the Holy Spirit. And I wrote this out. I said, as we set our individual selves aside to follow Christ, we can enter into a collective self, a collective identity with the Holy Spirit and with the church. And so we set our individual selves aside and we take on a common or collective identity with the Holy Spirit, and with the church. And that is how we have the same love, being one in spirit, being one in intention, being of one accord, being one in identity. All of this starts to work together. And so he gives us some practical advice in verse 3. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And so selfish ambition is when we place self-interest ahead of what the Lord declares is right or what is good for others. And vain conceit is a state of pride without basis or justification. And guess what we get to do out of selfish ambition or vain conceit? Nothing. We get to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit because selfish ambition puts the, the self above the corporate identity. The vain conceit is pride without basis. It, it doesn't have any place in the church. It doesn't have any place in our collective identity. And the contrast to that is given at the end of verse 3. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Humility considers others as more important than the self. That I choose through humility to let myself take a back seat and let the others around me, the corporate identity, the corporate self, take the forefront. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Thinking of myself less often and thinking of others and how my actions are going to encourage and help and benefit others instead of how are others going to benefit and help me. And so we see all of this uh, kind of coming together. And I skip down to verse 14. I, I, I just want to see this as well because I think it plays really well. Verse 14 says, do everything without complaining or arguing. And I love that because the ego, the self, is almost always behind a complaint. It's almost always behind being argumentative in any way. That as we get ourselves out of the picture, as we set ourselves aside in order to follow Christ, complaining will set itself aside. And arguing, being argumentative, will set itself aside. And I love the contrast between verse 3, that we do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but we do everything without complaining or arguing. So I want to challenge you, uh, maybe call it a little bit of a dare, or if you're in need of a double dog dare, I will double dog dare you to do a complaint audit. Do a complaint audit in your life, and if you're really brave and you need a triple dog dare, ask your spouse to help you in your complaint audit or a close coworker, and see if you can see how long you can make it without complaining. If you make it through lunch, I'll be impressed. Because when I do my own little complaint audits, I don't last very long. But if we, could, if we could gain an awareness of how much time we spend complaining, 
about the weather or the other drivers on the road or the person next to us or the preacher or whatever else we might choose to complain about, we would gain an awareness of ourself and our self's motives and how the self drives so much of our internal uh, monologue that goes on in there and how much of it has to do with complaining and arguing. And sometimes we argue about what we're complaining about. Somebody complained about, well, no, that's not. This is worse. Well, this, no, now we're complaining and arguing kind of at the same time. But we get to do everything without that, and we get to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And verse 4, it really is the capstone. This really is the definition of agape love. When he says, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. To look doesn't mean just to observe, but it means to be to be occupied with. To look to the interests of others means to be concerned with and to be intentional about meeting the needs and protecting the interests of others, not just ourselves. The word that we translate as agape or divine love means a self-sacrificing surrender. It means we put ourselves second or third or fourth and put others first and surrender our will to the will of another. This is what God did for us. This is what Christ did for us when he went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. He agape loved us. He made a self-sacrificing surrender. Paul says in another place, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might receive the blessings of God, that we might be reconciled to God. That is the model of self-sacrificing surrender for another. It's what Jesus did for us, and it's what he calls us to do for others. And it's really, really hard to do it alone. It's really, really hard to do it consistently alone, which is why we need each other, which is why Paul exhorts the church to do this together, to abandon our individual selves and identities and egos and create a collective identity that is one with him, one with Christ, one with the Holy Spirit, and one together. And when we start to get this right, that's when the church moves forward. That's when the kingdom expands. That's when the world stands up and takes notice that we are setting ourselves aside and pursuing the good of those around us. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The others are hired hands. They'll run away when the wolves come. But the good shepherd, he stands his ground. The good shepherd sets himself aside and stands his ground to protect the sheep, even laying down his life for the sheep. And so i got to brag on Linwood one more time here. Uh, we got a connection card this week. And uh, it was for somebody who's gone through a difficult time, is in a very difficult season, has been in a difficult season for some time. But on the connection card, they wrote, Praise God for Linwood with all their shepherds within. All those that will set themselves aside and care for someone else. One of our core values is caring for each other intentionally meeting the needs of those within our church and outside our church. And this is a person who was a recipient of that, where the collective identity chose to set themselves aside and be there for another person, to care for another person. And that's exactly what we're talking about. That's what a family of families does. That's a mission-accomplished moment. 
And so our bottom line today, our bottom line to try to pull this all together into one short statement. So if you drifted off or if you're checking your phone or something like that, come back. Because, because selfless living, what we're talking about, selfless living starts with less selfish living. That each time we choose to put someone else first and put ourselves to the side and we choose a less selfish route, that's a step towards selfless living. And we are called to selfless living. And this is a, something that takes a lifetime. It's not something you make a decision on a Sunday morning at the end of a sermon and suddenly you're now living a selfless life for the rest of your life. If you've figured that one out, come and see me because I want to know how that works. But each time we choose to be a little more selfless and a little less selfish, then we are on the path towards selfless living. But every time we choose to be a little more selfish, to put ourselves first, to advance our own agenda, to do something out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, then we become a little less selfless and a little more selfish. And so our goal today If we think about all the things that Jesus has said in the passage we looked at, at everything Paul said, if we want to come after him, we deny ourselves, we take up our cross, we take it up daily. We have a willingness to lose this life in order to gain eternal life. We choose to be like-minded, not advancing our own ideas at the expense of everyone else, but to choose to be one with the Spirit and one with each other, that we do nothing selfish, Nothing out of ambition that meets our needs but at the expense of others. And nothing out of vain conceit. Nothing with arguing or complaining. We choose to live selfishly. Then we take a step towards selfless living. And my hope and my prayer is that each and every one of us, and there are some selfless people as I look out over this crowd, and there is a selfish person on this stage as you look up here. I don't pretend to have this all figured out. But we can all make steps towards living more selflessly in his honor and in his glory. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word. We are so thankful for the way that you call us to follow you. You call us to take on your way of life. You call us to deny ourselves, to deny our egos, our sin natures. And take up our cross to identify with you, even if it comes at a cost, even if it comes at personal risk, and to follow you. And Lord, that out of your grace and out of your loving provision for us, you called us to do this together, to do this together with each other and with your Holy Spirit. What a gift, Lord that we don't have to follow you on our own, but that we can follow you together, that we can link arms together and put our individual selves aside that we might corporately serve you, serve your kingdom, advance your kingdom cause. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be a people who apply your word to our lives, that we would be different tomorrow because we came to church today, that we would have an awareness, a supernatural awareness. We invite your Holy Spirit to show us where we do something out of selfish ambition or out of vain conceit, where we, where we pursue arguing and complaining and the ego asserts itself, Lord, help us to be aware of these things and to choose to take a step towards selflessness. We love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray.